and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Today on Raising Rare, we are beginning a three-part mini-series with the founders of the Disorder Film Festival and the Disorder Channel, Bo Bigelow and Daniel DeFabio. We hope you learn how these two rare dads have found a new purpose, reset their expectations, and helped others by creating something that enriches the entire rare community. In the first part of our series, we are talking to Bo Bigelow, a father who has found himself doing things he never imagined before his daughter was diagnosed with USP7. Let's focus on you before Tess came into your life. Tell us about Bo. Sure. First of all, uh, I, I love your show, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. Um, my life before Tess came along uh, was pretty pretty different from what it is now. So uh, I'm an attorney. I was practicing in New York City, working just those kind of crazy hours that you hear about, you know, 80-hour weeks, 90-hour weeks. And I was, I was um, just working all the time, really. I didn't see much of much of my family. I didn't see much of my son. He's three years older than Tess. And I didn't see much of my wife either. I was we were living in Connecticut and I was commuting four hours uh round trip every day before Tess came along. It's just working mostly. Working and riding the train. That's that's a tough life. And what kind of law did you practice? Uh, I did consumer protection law. So uh, I was working in New York City and there's just a lot of sort of shenanigans that go on in New York with people being defrauded. So these are mostly cases about cars. People would come into our office and say, you know, my English is kind of spotty and I bought this car and it was used and I got this certificate that says the car's fine, but I, I have a feeling something's wrong with it. And then our, our law firm would have our expert and our kind of mechanics look at it and they would realize like, oh, this car was underwater. This car was in Hurricane Katrina. Like, that's why your car doesn't work. Nobody told you this when you bought the car? And they're like, no. So it was kind of helping people get get their money back when they'd gotten cheated, you know, buying a car. That was mostly what I did. Um, but some lemon law stuff and some warranty warranty stuff, mostly that's, that's what I did. It's amazing um, how life changes after uh, our kids are born, right? I, I can imagine what my life was before Raga was born and, and uh, it's precisely just working all the time. I, I don't know if I was working more back then or working more now, but could, could you tell us about Tess and, and uh, her story, you know, after she was born through her diagnosis, we'd love to learn more about it. Her brother, Dana was way ahead of the curve in terms of doing all the stuff, all the milestones. So he walked early, he talked early, and it was just kind of a precocious kid. So when Tess came along um, in 09, uh, she wasn't really doing many of those things. And my wife had a feeling that something was going on. And I didn't really, I, I thought it was fine. And I thought, you know, everything you read about kid two is that they usually 
take their time doing those things, mostly because their older sibling is doing them for them, right? Like rather than walk across the room, your your older brother is already across the room getting the thing you wanted and bringing it to you. And and you don't talk because your older brother is talking for you. And so you 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 don't hit those milestones the way, you know, maybe that your older sibling did. So that's what I figured was going on. Like I said, I was at work almost all the time. So I wasn't around during the days to see, you know, what was happening in those early days. After a while though, it really became something that we couldn't ignore anymore. My my wife was saying all along that something was wrong. And in time I came to agree. And what was going on with her is that she was very much just checked out. She would stare straight ahead and not respond very much to us, to sounds, to to anything in the world around her. She just kind of had this fixed stare and you you could snap your fingers in front of her face and you could make a loud noise and she just wouldn't react at all. She just you know, it became one of our sayings in those early days and years, my wife and I would say to each other, she's in there. You know, we would try to reassure each other, she's in there. Like, we just have to find a way to kind of get her out. And the fact that we were even saying that, that she was that locked in, you know, and not responsive, um, you know, it just, it was really difficult for us. We didn't know what to do. And we, we began a series of just visits, doctor visits to treat the the different things that were going on with her. So she had a, a GI issue early on where she was just spitting up a lot of food and she was drooling a lot. And she just, her, the, the, the chewing and swallowing and digesting thing that we all do was not working well for her. So that was a thing, you know, go see a GI doc about that. And she had vision stuff. So that not, not seeing us, not appearing to see us and not responding when you'd snap your fingers in front of her face, that became a thing. Let's check out her vision and figure out what that is. And it was just a matter of treating these various symptoms, these systems that had issues and and trying to get some answers there. And in time, we began to wonder, there are just so many things going on here, orthopedics and GI and vision and just so many different systems that have problems. This this is not the usual thing. Her brother had the the annual checkup with the doctor, you know, for his birthday. And that was it. He was a really healthy kid. And we thought, this is just not what we should be doing as much as we are. We just shouldn't, there shouldn't be this many things going wrong. So we started to entertain the possibility that there was some single cause for all of it, some sort of genetic something that, that was causing all of this. And so we began this diagnostic odyssey of Genetic testing. Uh, we would see, we saw somebody here. We moved here to Maine. We were living in Connecticut at the time she was born. We moved here to Maine, and uh, the plan was for me to go back to work at some point, find a job here. We moved here for my wife's job. So, so I was home with Tess for those, those first years, and um, it was my sort of responsibility to, to take care of her all, all day, you know, during the day. And we, we started this genetics journey. So we had a team of people here in Portland, and then we had another team in Boston, and they had sort of a good-natured competition going between them, each one saying, we're going to get the answer, but we are going to get the answer. And in the end, what those appointments were like, somebody would get an idea, okay, based on this profile, based on these symptoms, I think this is Angelman syndrome. You know, this, these are the, this is the profile for Angelman and test fits that perfectly. And I'm pretty sure that's what this is. So let's test for that. And we would get that test and it would be negative. And 
Then we would do that again. Okay, this time I think it's Prader-Willi syndrome. This really looks like that. We're going to try that. We would take that and we would cross our fingers and think, okay, this is going to be it. This is going to be our answer. We'd go home and kind of Google the syndrome and find out what life is like with somebody with Prader-Willi. And, you know, is there an online community? Yes, there is. And we'd kind of dabble in learning about it only to find out, no, it's not that either. That was negative also. And in time, what we did was cross everything off the list that anybody had heard of or theorized. And in the end, this this team here in Portland said, we don't really know what this is. We have kind of run out of answers uh, and run out of tests to run. I'll never forget the genesis, the geneticist here in Portland. She said, I keep a, a list, a handwritten list of people that I haven't solved. And I keep it in my breast pocket with me every day at work. And Tess's name is now going to go on that list because I can't help you guys. I don't know what this is. And that was it for a long time. We didn't really know what to do next. And because she fit the profiles of these other two diseases more than anything else, all we were able to do is just kind of glom on to those communities, you know, try to lurk around in the Facebook group and see what do you guys do for GI stuff or what do you guys do for vision stuff and what are you doing about communication and just kind of troubleshoot that way. But it was this really dark time of, of belonging nowhere and having no community and no answer and just kind of being almost like imposters in these other diseases that we didn't really belong to. And then the two genetics teams joined forces uh, in connection with uh, the Manton Center in Boston. We mapped her genome. We mapped Tess's genome. So they took genetic material from her and my wife and me and, and mapped it all out and figured out what gene was mutated in Tess. And it was part of a research study. So usually these things are really expensive, but we got it done for, for a song, you know, comparatively. They found the gene and it's called USP7. So they tell us the gene and, you know, my wife and I are pretty goal-oriented people. We just do a lot of stuff and we are kind of just gunners, really. Like we're type A, really. And so when we get the news of what the gene is, we want to do something. We want to get moving on a cure or, you know, join a group or do, do all the things that you can do when you have the gene. We wanted to do all of them. Instead, we were told that there really isn't anything. There's nothing to do because we don't know anything about this gene. The genetics team said, we can't tell you this is a disease. We can't tell you this is a thing. We can't even tell you that this mutation is causing all the stuff in tests. All we can tell you is that you have this variant of unknown significant, VUS. Just means here's the thing that's different when we compare Tess's genetic material to her parents. And that's all we can tell you. So good luck with that. And so despite having an answer, it was kind of a non-answer because we remained in that same territory of having no community, no one to turn to with our questions, uh, just no tribe really. And we were, we continued to be alone and being type A people, we had a really hard time with that because we had to just kind of decide to let go, not try to do anything, to not try to fix it, to just keep doing the the symptom treating stuff we'd been doing for Tess and otherwise not really do anything. So that was her diagnosis. And a bunch of time went by, maybe like a year and a half. It was summer of 2015. It was July. And uh, I was reading this article in the New Yorker, in, in the New Yorker magazine about another rare disease family 
this guy in Utah, Matt Mike, how he had his son Bertrand had this variant of unknown significance. And they, they were just like us because they were the only known case that they could find in the world. They, they did what we were doing. They got on the computer and searched for people and posted things and tried to find other people. And they just, they were under the impression they were the only people in the world. And instead of giving up and letting go, like we had been doing for, for all those months, Matt Mike didn't do that. He's a computer science guy. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to give up. I think there are other people out there. And so he devised a method for, to, to use the internet to find other patients with NGLI1. That was, that was his son's condition. And so he had this system, this, this method really posted it on his website and he shared it. And he said, this is what worked for me. You can do the same thing. And he gave detailed instructions for how to do it. And so my wife and I decided to do the same. We you know, it was a, a radical switch in our thinking from from the letting go mindset to back in, okay, let's do something mindset. We were both really emotional about it. We were, there were some tears that would just come out of nowhere. You just were kind of blindsided by just the, the whipsawing back and forth between is there a tribe? Is there not a tribe? Are we going to find someone? Are we not? And, and it was just a, a really... Um, challenging summer. I think I, I remember reading the article. I was picking my son up from, from summer camp, from this day camp, and he's getting in the car and my, I'm like, my face is like drenched. I'm like sobbing in the car just from reading the article. He gets in the car. And he's like, what, what's wrong? What happened? What, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing, buddy. Cool. You know, how old was he? So this was 2015 and he was born in 06, but he was nine. Yeah. Tough for a kid that age to understand why is dad crying right. you just wipe your but he seems happy yeah you wipe with your sleeve and you say nothing nothing i'm fine I'm dead. I'm dead. it's incredible how your journey started with how an answer and when when was this uh, that you got the sequencing for uh, results for usb7 so we got the usb7 result in 2013 i want to say it was march and so it was, it was like July, 2015, when I read about Matt, and when we, my wife and I did our thing. So we followed Matt's procedure to the letter and, and created this webpage that said, kind of help us find other people. And we wanted to be realistic about it. We had been Googling USP7 for over two years and not really finding anything. And we were trying to set ourselves up for this idea that maybe there is no one. Matt found other people, but maybe we won't. Maybe there will be one other person. Maybe this will take 10 years. So we tried really hard not to get our hopes up and just kind of adjust our expectations and, and take a deep breath and say, okay, this is, a, this is a process. This is going to take time. And this is the beginning uh, here in summer 2015. Let's just let's put it out there and see what happens. So we did that. And and it was really touching and wonderful the way our friends and family who had you know, watched for years with us working with tests and dealing with tests, they had wanted so badly to do something for us for years, like donate somewhere, support a foundation that of course didn't exist. They just wanted to do something. So as soon as we put our thing out there and said, hey, please share this, they really did. I mean, they responded overwhelmingly and uh and it and it went viral kind of overnight and the next day i got an email from somebody who said he worked in a lab at baylor college of medicine in houston a guy named mike fountain and he said 
I work on this gene. I work on USB7. There are other patients and we should talk. And so the day after we posted our thing, we got on the phone with Mike and we found out that they were about to publish the very first paper about USB7. It was still pretty top secret. It was hush hush. And it wasn't due to come out until like August or September. So I, we couldn't tell anybody, but this was a thing. This is a disease. There's seven other people who we know of who have it and we've documented them. We have their genetics reports. Like this is that you weren't imagining this. It's really a thing. It comes from USP7. And, and, you know, if Tess fits, she'd be patient number eight. And so we were just blown away that this, that this happened, just being on the phone with someone and having him tell us this in words, uh, it just blew us away. And it was literally overnight. It was. Yeah. We, we'd done all that to adjust our expectations only to have it literally be 24 hours. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. There's so many parallels to your story and my story. God, it would, just the dates are a little shifted uh, by five years, I guess. Uh, but you know, we got a diagnosis. I read Matt Mites' uh, algorithm. I did exactly what he said <laughs> we should do. And overnight, someone from Netherlands reached out and say, said, uh, you know, they had a, they had a kid with uh, the same mutation. I did. I wrote a blog post. It went viral. It, it's uh, it's hilarious how we just like follow the same <laughs> algorithm and pattern, but it works. It works really good. Well, and I think what was really cool was the your family and friends who were probably feeling helpless all along. We don't know what to do for you. You were feeling helpless because you didn't have your tribe, which you throw around as like a word you use all the time, but has become a real word now. All those people, you gave them something that they could do to contribute. And by doing that, you just opened up the, the floodgates that got you down to that one guy at Baylor. It's amazing just how we sometimes forget We've got already got a network built. We already have friends and family who really want to help. They're definitely there. We call them the Tess Army. They uh, they respond when we ask. That's for sure. So when did you start your podcast in this journey? So that was also in 2015, and that was a pretty dramatic shift for me. So um, moving from this law job in New York, just working all the time, and then suddenly stopping work. And being at home all the time made me just nuts. I, I had a really difficult time with that. It, it, to, to just change my entire life like that, um, I, I didn't do well with it. It was not great for me for a number of years there. And, and what I found helpful was just doing creative stuff. I, I used to love creative writing like in college and back in the day. And so I started to do a lot of that. And that was a way to just kind of keep busy, do something, keep my mind occupied and and so I was doing a lot of writing in those first few years before Tess came along and even after she came along, but I wasn't, even after we had Tess, I wasn't writing about her and about our struggles with her. I just thought, you know, I, that, I don't want to be this public about that and I don't want to tell anybody about it. And I didn't know how to even write about it. I didn't know what to say. I was having such a hard time with everything that I just, I didn't even know how to write about it. So I really very purposely did not write about Tess at all. And I wasn't public about anything. The very first public thing, you know, I started to do was the podcast and the the blog post. And and so making that change to being public about it and kind of owning it and just saying saying it out loud, saying it to other people, getting in the habit of writing about it and really owning it 
took some time. It was not overnight. That, that I struggled with that for sure. And I still do. I think it's a process, like knowing what to reveal and what to keep back for yourself. It's just private family stuff and what you want to really talk about. I, I, you know, that's, that's not easy, I think. Yeah, it's definitely not easy. It's uh, one of those where you, you, you want to think long and hard about, but at the same time, you want to get it out from your heart. And so it's, it, it takes practice to, uh, to know what's, what's, what's within the limits and what's not. But I'm very curious, like how did that change once you started your podcast and your, and your blog post, and obviously you found more patience, uh, but how did, how did that change your perception of the disease? How did, how did that change your family's perception of, of living with tests? Yeah, it changed our perception a lot. I think a big part of it is that I began to really do everything I could to find more patients and to find the people who were like us, you know, the families out there who negative, negative for all these different genetic syndromes. They've never heard of USP7. They don't know to even Google it. And then suddenly they're just like us. They get, they get their genetic results and, and then suddenly they're they're in the club, right? They're in our tribe. So finding those people, trying to just make more people aware. If you have these symptoms and you think you might have a thing and, and all your genetic stuff has come back negative, maybe you have the thing we have. Like that was a big goal with the podcast. It's just find the families like us. And then once we did find them, one thing I love to do is just connect with them, to talk with them. We, we had our first, um, family conference in 2017. So a couple of years after we got our diagnosis. So getting on a plane with Tess, our whole family and flying to Houston, going to Baylor, meeting Mike Fountain in person, meeting Christian Schaff, whose lab Mike worked in, who's basically the discoverer of this disease, meeting him in person and meeting with these other families. That was, there's really nothing like that to just meet another family in person and be able to, you know, it's funny. I, I thought we would get there and have all this talking that we would just be talking nonstop. And it was almost the opposite. You get there and because you already know everything that they've gone through, a lot of the time you're just sitting, you're not saying a word. They're not saying a word. You're just comfortable together in this silence because you're walking the same walk together. And that was a really special thing. You know, the podcast, a lot of it was about spreading awareness, but a lot of it was kind of sorting out how do I feel about these things? It's almost like an audio diary of sorts. Like like COVID hit and my wife said, you know, you, you should do, you should be keeping a journal. Like you should do some recordings. And I was like, I already am. It's called my podcast. Like, you know, you're sorting out an, an event takes place. Somebody, you meet a stranger in public and they're really kind to test or we go to a conference and we meet other family or we have a disappointing you know, experience or whatever. And then, so how do I feel about that? How do I move forward from this? What have I learned from this? I think a lot of my writing and podcasting is about that. It's just kind of sorting through those things and, and figuring things out. Uh, I wanted to ask, how is Tess doing today? She's doing great. She's really great. She's 11 now and she goes to public school. And one thing that we love about our life with her is that we know a ton of things that make her really happy. So she loves swimming and water play of any kind. So you can put her in front of the sink with a bunch of dishes and, you know, let her turn on the water and she'll be thrilled with that. She loves music. She loves movement. She loves to dance. She loves food. She'll just eat pretty much anything you put in front of her. She loves to eat. And so 
all these things that keep her happy. I'm really aware sometimes when I talk about other rare diseases and I meet other rare disease parents, I'm really aware of how lucky we are that we know what keeps Tess happy. And I know that not everybody is in that situation. And, you know, sending Tess to school has been, has been lovely. We were really afraid about it. We were afraid she'd get bullied and maybe wouldn't be accepted and maybe ignored. And it's, it's been the opposite. She just finished fifth grade. She's going to be in middle school this fall and her, her classmates and our, our community, we live in a small town right outside of Portland, about 11,000 people. And so the whole community has really stepped forward and embraced her and really seen her for who she is and what she's about. And we've had a, a really, a beautiful experience with school so far for her. So she loves it and we love sending her there and she's really doing well. That's fantastic to, to hear that. I wondered what is, what is the long-term view? What's the prognosis for Tess? That's a great question. We don't really know. And a big reason we don't know is that there's a wide range of effects from this disease. Uh, we went to a conference a couple of years ago. We've had several conferences, that first one in, in Houston. And a couple of years ago, there was somebody who came to the conference who was about to finish high school. And he has the disease and he didn't want to be in photos of the group. He didn't want to be in group photos. And his, his mom explained that he didn't want to be in the photos because he didn't want his friends at school to have any idea that, that he had this disease. And in other words, he's able to pass for a typical kid. He, nobody has any idea that he's got anything going on, this mutation. And he leads a pretty normal life. He goes to school, he can read, he can write, he can do whatever you got to do to, to be a high school student. And Tess, on the other hand, is very affected. She, she has autism. She needs to be supervised 24-7. You can't leave her alone for even a minute because she, everything goes in her mouth. Uh, whether it's food or not. So it can be really dangerous if you leave Legos or batteries or a pen, anything around, um, she'll grab it and chew on it and try to swallow it. And so we've we've stripped our whole house of anything that can be, you know, swallowed or or dangerous if chewed on. And we we have to keep things up high. We have to lock stuff up. You know, you can't she can't cross the street by herself. She doesn't know about danger. If a if a bug lands on her. She doesn't swat it away. She'll just sit there and get bitten or stunk. So she needs help with every aspect of daily life, you know, feeding, going to the bathroom, everything. And so we, we don't really know what the future holds for us. We, we do know of some patients who are older. We just found one. The oldest we know of so far is in her forties. We just discovered her before that. The oldest was, I think 30, but you know, we don't have any reason to believe that it affects lifespan. We don't think it's neurodegenerative. We haven't found any evidence of that. And so we don't really know. We think, we think Tess will probably need our help for her whole life, but she's surprised us all along with things she's been able to do. We, every fall, when, I, when we send her to school, we, there's a document that we send with her. It's kind of like her instruction. She's nonverbal and she can't, she can't tell people what she needs. So we, we send these along and we update it every year. It's you know, kind of the Tess instruction book. and, and Right on the front inside cover, it says the thing that we say all the time about Tess, which is the only limits she has are the ones that we put on her. So if we tell you she's not going to do something the next week. She's going to spite you and do it. So they said she'd never walk and she was walking at five. It took her a while, but she did it. You know, she doesn't talk, but we have every reason to believe that 
you know, they'll have some words at some point. We're going to keep working. So tough to say. We don't really know, but we're, we're going to keep working on all this stuff. So I just want to go back to, you have a, a user's manual for tests that you wrote. I think that that's, that's just a wonderful idea. And actually, for kids with, with disorders like Tess's, but it, just for kids, you know, it, and, and I love that you have like a, an inspirational quote at the beginning of it. I'm picturing this thing and said, wow, that's a fantastic idea because you can go back and look at those, you know, those, those books and say, we can see the progress. We can see what's happened. We can, we can remember things, you know, as they were. I think that's just a fantastic idea. And it's not hard for anybody to just say, oh, yeah, I'll write an instruction manual for my kid and turn it in, into a thing that you do every year. <laughs> the teachers would love it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, questions come up about everything. What can she eat? What can she not eat? We're seeing this. Is this typical of her? That You know, how does this work? How does bathroom work? What's the, what's the deal with medications? I mean, there's, we, we just based it on the questions we were hearing most often, and we just kind of designed it around that. It's incredible. I think um, uh, these kids are so unique in their own ways that it's it's impossible for anybody to do the right thing, and even even us parents sometimes just just forget how to how to deal with them. And I think this is this is a wonderful thing. And I'm I'm sure like every year as you go updated, it's going to be uh, kind of a, a reminder for you to see to see what what you were wrong with and what you were right with, and and how much progress she's making. Uh, I really like that idea. Yeah, don't you? Yeah, Sana, don't you feel like you just learned so much? Like, you know, even compared to a year ago with Raga, like what you know now compared to then, you know, it's like. Yeah, these kids, it's crazy. They they changed so so quickly. Even a couple of months ago, I I felt like I I was limiting him off certain activities that I thought he cannot do, and now he's unlocked himself and he's doing some of those activities. And so it's it's very true that the only limits they have are the limits that we post on them. Well, and the, the act of writing it down and reflecting on it will keep it straight in your mind. How, how, how did that time progress? What happened there? How quickly was it? Because as we, you know, try to think back, you start to lose those dates. And, oh, was that when he was two or was that when he was three? You know, and if you had it nailed down, it's kind of like, here's the story of the life. And then, you know, to give that to your kid as a, a gift someday, be fantastic. Here's you growing up. It's a it's the world encyclopedia of of past or of Raga. <laughs> I just want to thank you so much for your for your time and for sharing Tessa's story. You you shared some things about how, you know, your change in life of, of being the guy working and riding on train to I'm at home twenty four seven doing this. Everybody can relate to that, the size of that change. But particularly after COVID now, but I think that that is very, you know, critical to your story. And then when you saw the hope and you saw a way to go forward and you, you took your type A personality, turned it back on and look what you've done. So next time we're going to talk to Daniel and we're going to learn about his son, Lucas, and how Lucas changed Daniel's life in so many ways. Thanks for being here, Bo. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be with you. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. 
You can donate to Cure GPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at curegpx4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare.